As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. This episode stems from my yearning to understand the events that have transpired in Afghanistan over the last month. As my mother's father, Rahimullah, was Patan, coming from the Yusufzai tribe, this affair carries a particular interest to me. But what will become apparent through listening to this episode is the particular importance of these events for all Muslims, wherever they are in the world and whatever their bloodline. This conversation is with a friend of mine from the UK called Jawad Mughal. He is a man for whom the only fitting adjective to describe him is noble. He is of Punjabi heritage, based in Nottingham, and has many ties with people from all walks of life, especially in the subcontinent. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 11, The Afghanistan Question, The Beginning of an Era. The closest I've been to Khyber Pass, I've been quite close to be fair, and it's interesting how I went, is... Um, my uncles they just love blood sport and you go to that region, you can buy guns, animals, you name it, you buy it. And he's mm-hmm. like fight, fighting chickens, cockerels. I went with him once to, you know, he had friends there, went went to the Kyber Pass region. You see the, it's like, a, it's like a market, but like, it's just a crazy market. You can buy anything and everything. And I remember seeing a USSR helicopter in the like, far distance just land. And I was thinking, oh, no, we're going to get, you know, something's going to kick off here. I'm going to die. I'm 18 years old. I've got my whole life ahead of me. What's going on here? And I go to my uncle, like, what's happening there? And he goes, oh, it's just a deal going down. And I was like, what are they selling to them? He goes, opium. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you'll see opium being sold there. And they'll unload the AK-47s and clash in the cost and they'll do the deal. And that's it. Wow. And it's like an ungoverned region that, you can only go there if you've been given the green light by someone. You know, if you know someone, you can go. If not, you're just going to get kidnapped or probably killed. But this was going back, this is going back like 12 years ago. And it's changed a lot since then. But another memory I have is as soon as I landed in Pakistan, I landed in Islamabad and I come out of the airport and I'm going, you know, we're going out of the airport and I see this massive military base and there's like thousands and thousands of jets just parked up there. And I'm infuriated at this moment, like, to my uncle, like, why have you got, you know, American and British jets here, you know, going, flying over to bomb the Afghanis? He goes, he said something very interesting to me. He goes, there's nothing better than having your brother's enemy as a friend. 
Wow. And I goes, why? He goes, because the minute a plane goes off from there, they know. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. You know, and I was like, wow, I was shocked. But he was, it was, he was telling you, he was saying, this is, this is, this is it. You know, you, you, they'll know exactly where that plane's going and they'll, the, the, the information will be fed across the border. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but then but then the other side of the experience I have is, you know, being born, born and raised in the UK, I have a lot of friends who served in the war, in the Afghan war. In you know, I have friends who've lost their lives in the Afghan war. I've had friends that have come back and traumatized PTSD. And then, you know, I speak to them about their experiences in Afghanistan. And something interesting, one of my friends told me, he goes, that he's been in the British military for, what, 10 years now. And he goes, he's been all over the world. And when you go to these poorer parts of the world, you see a difference between the Afghans and everyone else. He goes, when we go to Africa, you know, the children, the people, they're pulling on our clothes. They're trying to take things from us. You know, they want aid. But when we go to Afghanistan, they're poor. They're probably poorer than the African countries, but they don't harass us for anything. They don't even look at us. They just ignore us and carry on. And he says they have like a nobility in their poverty. Well, they, they have a nobility in their genetics. Yeah which is clearly reflected. And he goes, you know, no one comes to you over there if you're, if you're in your military uniform. They don't even look at you. They don't consider you. And you, you genuinely feel like an outsider because there is literally no communication with the other party. Mm. And I asked him, do you know the difference between a Pashtun and a Tajik? You know, can you tell the difference? He goes, we don't know. We can't, we can't tell the difference between anyone. They've all got beards. They're all dressed the same. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and these are the guys that are on the ground, eh? Exactly, they're on the ground, and then, then, and he's told me he says that. Do you know how the British and American were there? They were trying to form a democratic government, and he said to me, "The guys in the army are the worst." And you know, it's like <laughs> what they what they're setting up there is it was it was it was destined to fail because then the, the, they didn't have no nobility in them. The men had no nobility; they were just dying to establish something that wasn't real that wasn't natural wasn't a natural order to the people there. having a democratic liberal government it just doesn't match with that with that place and the people the history it just doesn't match it would have never happened the one thing that i keep hearing is this thing of like afghans 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 as in there's a distinction between the afghans and the taliban but the taliban are Afghan, you know? So there's, you can't dis differentiate like that. And then it like begs the question, who are the people that traditionally make up Afghanistan? Yeah, so you've got a mixture because you've got provinces. So you've got the Pashtuns, you've got the Tajiks, you've got the Hazaras, etc. You've got many different types of people in Afghanistan and they're all a tribal people. But when we say tribal, we don't mean in the modern day rhetoric of people who are just barbaric and backwards. We mean tribalism, they... They stick to their customs. They have pride. You know, they have a social order. And that tribalism is shown in how they are, which means that they've never been defeated. They're undefeatable because it's something they hold on to. And the Western narrative of, oh, they're tribal and they're barbaric with their women and children is just to fool the people. But it's such a, you know, you've got the, you've got the Tajiks, you've got the Pashtuns, you've got the Hazaris, you've got all these people, and they can't be put under this umbrella of, uh, Afghani, which is kind of even the same in Pakistan. You can't say Pakistani because 
there's so many different types of people in Pakistan as well. You've got the Baloch, you've got the Kashmiris, you've got the Punjabis, you know, people from Sindh. You've got so many different people. Which, I mean, when I look at the United Kingdom, I see the same thing. If you remove the last, let's say, 200 years, well, you have four nations. Uh, you've got the Scottish, you've got the Welsh, you've got the Irish, and then you have what is known as the English, <laughs> right? Well, the United Kingdom itself is four separate nations. That's the example of the United Kingdom. Now, if you look at somewhere like South Africa, where I am now, you've got Africana, the Zulu, the Sutu, the Kosa, the this one, that one. There's like a whole load of different tribal people. And again, when you try and put it under one banner of South Africa, it doesn't quite work. But at the end of the day, the Africana, Africana, the Zulu, a Zulu. So it's kind of like it's modern idea of the nation state is. It's not agreeing. The thing that Pakistan and Afghanistan have in common is the Darulums that they have, the teachings of madrasas. It's exactly the same throughout both regions. They're very similar in that regard. And if you see in Pakistan, they've always had issues with, I'd say, toxic separatist movements, always trying to uprise. You know, you have it with the Balochistanis, you have it in, in uh, Karachi, Sin with the MQM. You know, even right now in Pakistan, this is a, quite an interesting narrative that I came across the other day. I was speaking to someone who's Pakistani and he was absolutely hell-bent against the Taliban. And what you have in Pakistan is a movement, a separatist movement in Pakistan called Trike Taliban Pakistan. So they're like from Pakistan now, this movement. And they, they, they call themselves the Taliban of Pakistan. And the, what they are, they're from Waziristan originally. And a lot of people in Pakistan confuse the Taliban for these people because they have the same kind of name in their movement as the Taliban do. And they originate from Waziristan. Now, these people, they're anti-state, as an anti-Pakistani state. Whereas what the, what, the, what, the, what the Taliban in Afghanistan, what they are, they're anti-foreign interference, anti-foreign states coming in. They say, you know, we don't want anyone foreign, you're out. We want our own people. We want to set up our own governance. So a lot of the people in Pakistan, they don't understand the difference between the two. So a lot of Pakistanis I've been speaking to here are actually saying things without knowing that there is a very fine difference between those who operate in Pakistan under the name of Taliban and those who operate in Afghanistan under the name of Taliban. Who and what is the Taliban? Mm -hmm. Taliban is, is from what I've from what I've seen. I'll say from what I've seen, not what I've read. From what I've seen in Pakistan, going up to the northwest regions, speaking to people there, my uncle's friends, actual Mujahideen, is that there were a group of freedom fighters who were anti-foreign government coming into our country. They started with the Russian war, and the high point I would say was under the leadership of Mullah Omar, the Emirate of Mullah Omar. And they were just about cutting out the opium trade, social economic reform with Sharia, with, 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 with proper Islamic governance. That's all it was. And over time, maybe it's been corrupted. Maybe its narrative has changed. I don't know. I haven't been there for such a long time. But from what my understanding was, is they originally just a group of freedom fighters in the name of Allah went out there to liberate their country. What's interesting is when the Taliban did come in, the, I think Afghanistan was supplying 95% of the world's heroin through Afghanistan. 
it was crazy. And then when the Taliban came in, I remember speaking to my grandfather's friend who was uh, a Pakhtun. And he says that uh, the farmers who were growing the opium on their land, the Taliban went up to them and says, look, you've got 30 days to change your crops. And if you don't change your crops, we'll kill you and we'll bury you here. <laughs> As in no longer farm opium. And the production went down to 5%. Wow. You mentioned Mullah Omar. And you said that the Taliban were, was at its height under his leadership. Who was he and where does he fit into the picture? From what I, what I, what I know of him, he's a very secretive character. Not many people know much about him. and I admit, neither do I. He was, you know, standard procedure, kind of madrasa educated, went through that whole process of, that's that, like I say, in that part of the world, you know, your education is given to you through a madrasa. Similarly, in Pakistan. Pakistan's probably gone a bit more forward in that regard but certainly in Afghanistan as you go through the madrasas and he ended up in the Taliban fighting built himself up the ranks became the leader of the Taliban in the early 90s and completely went ghost as in went underground no one knew where he was and it got to a point where people were thinking, is he even alive you know no one's seen him and uh, they say that he let, you know, the, he led the war, war against the Russians. Well, not led the war, but he, it was his victory. It was because of him the victory against the Russians happened. How much truth is in that, I don't know. But the thing with Mullah Omar that I like about him is how he, when he won Kabul, he got together the 12 tribes and he emerged after years holding the cape of the Rasul Sallallahu And that was like, wow. What, what he essentially did was use, he simply, the, 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 the cloak of the Rasul was a symbolism of him saying to the, the 12 tribes that the Taliban have taken over, taking it back. And I think he took it back, it's the same, it's the same players now, it's where they had this Afghani kind of so-called government in place, he overthrew them again. You said that the education is all through the madrasas. What is the reality of that? A young child going to madrasa, what are they learning there? So, so this is the issue right now is, I was speaking with one of my uh, friend's dads who is a uh, Hafiz of Quran and his brother actually fought in the war against the Russians in the 80s and he's died now. And he was heavily involved in the Kashmiri um, war as well, the, the, the jihad in Kashmir as well. And his education was of that same thing, of that Darul Loom. And it was heavily Diyabandi. So it's like from a young, from a young age, six, seven, you go into the madrasa, you, you're taught your basic Islamic principles, you know, your five pillars. But the, 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 the thing is, it's Hafiz of Quran, you know, everyone's a Hafiz. It's a pretty standard procedure, but it, it's, it's, there's no political science involved, if that makes sense. It's all Sharia based. So if you look at other Islamic principles, such as, you know, like the Sawuf and things like this, uh, they're not taught. So it's a predominantly Diobandi perspective yeah. on life. Because my friend, my friend whose father and his uncles who all fought in these wars, and they had this education. And I can see it in my friend that he's had the same education that his fathers and his grandfathers and his uncles had. And it's, it's the same thing. It's a very Diobandi, Darul Loom kind of education. It, 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 what I think is a key factor now for that part of the world is the light of the deen that enters. 
if it sticks to these Darulums and this kind of um, Diobundi kind of outlook, then I, I think that will probably lead to a very different outcome to what we want. What's interesting is the, 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 their social structure amongst the Taliban. You know, they've got such a such a good structure between within them that they were able to take over Afghanistan in over a matter of days. You know, they must have had people on the ground. I was speaking to someone, and he said to me that the one good thing about the Taliban that the people love is the swift justice system they have. If something happens and they're there and they'll deal with the matter instantly. They're there on the ground. Uh, if you look at the other end of the border of Pakistan, where you have to go to the court, you have to, you have to pay X amount of money to file a complaint, and then you have to pay bribes, and then you go down this horrible, treacherous kind of process, and by the end of it, you, you, you just give up and you never get justice. And it's, it's Ashraf Ghani, his, his constitution that was overthrown in Afghanistan right now was known for his corruption. And what what a lot of people don't know is he had he had about thirty to thirty five parties opposing him, regional and national, and that's the political elite of Afghanistan. And the Taliban have just taken them all out and just gone poof. But it's 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 a, it's a swift justice and the security that the Taliban provide the people because they don't just provide them security from you know the, each other, but they provide them security from foreign invasion. Mm. It's, it's, it's what, what the Taliban have done is very similar to what Alexander the Great did, honestly, the way they've taken over. Have you, have you seen that quote by Alexander the Great? Um, let me just get, get it up. I don't, want to, I don't want to misquote it. Yeah, Alexander the Great himself said in a letter to his mother, I'm involved in the land of brave people where every foot on the ground is like a wall of steel confronting my soldiers. You have brought one son into the world, but everyone in this land can be called an Alexander. And he was referring to the Punjabi and the Patans. Yes. <laughs> you know. Which is proof. I mean, one thing that I, I mean, look again, my, my, my Nana, my mother's father was Patan. He was from the Yusuf Zai tribe. And one thing that I love about the history of the Patan is that they are a nation that has never been defeated. And it comes back to what you said at the beginning about why they've never been defeated. And it's because they hold on to, I mean, I guess you could say first and foremost, their identity. But it's their identity includes the culture and the land and, and the continuation of what it is that their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their ancestors did. And they're continuing that on. And then when you now mention about the Taliban, that their whole agenda has been, since the beginning, fighting for freedom from any foreign interference, basically, which makes perfect sense because they know what works for them, for their people in that area, because it's worked forever. And the well, and the modern Western narrative that they're pushing in the news right now is they they're cruel to women and they're absolutely uh, tyrannical towards their women. It, it just doesn't add up. If someone knows the history of these people, they'd know that you know the part of the value system has always been, you know, women are a fundamental part of society. Why would Alexander the Great say to his mom that every woman here has given birth to an Alexander? You know, that's not what an oppressed woman does. <laughs> wow! Wow! That's beautiful. Ah, oh, that's that's that is spot on. 
Yeah, because because uh, the, the thing is, is that we're young men now. We're having family. We've got children. We're having children. We're having families. And one thing I've learned is happy parents create happy children. Mm. You know, so to create an Alexander, what state must you be in? It's definitely not oppressed. Definitely not oppressed. Mm. How did this thing begin in, 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 in like just the American interference with Afghanistan and the Taliban? Because the Taliban ruled over Afghanistan, right? Up until into the 2000s. Yeah. So it's, so it's with 9-11, right? Yeah, it was 9-11 and they wanted Osama bin Laden. And uh, like I said, Mullah Omar was the Amir of Afghanistan, you know, it was an, and he refused to extradite Osama bin Laden to the Americans, which gave Americans reason to go back into Afghanistan because they held Osama bin Laden responsible for 9-11. And it just gave them reason to go in. And then the Taliban from then went back into hiding, went underground. And the thing is, is when they go underground, you never find them. Well, yeah, because they're in the mountains, yeah. you know? Exactly. And then the thing is, I, uh, the, the market I do on a Friday, the market officer served in the military. He went to Afghanistan and he told me they used to go into the mountains and they just used to get lost. There were tunnels on tunnels on tunnels. And he, he told me about one experience he had, which he thought that they, pot, they, got, they got a piece of string. They tied it to the entrance of the mountain and, you know, they fed it as they were walking. And somebody somewhere along the line snipped the snipped the string and they were lost and they came to the conclusion that we're going to die here now so they just set up camp in a little cave and were just trying to live out the rest of their days that they had left because they knew they were never going to make it out and then afterwards they sent a search party out and they found them luckily and he made it out alive and after that I think he left he left the military after that he discharged himself and just said I can't do this no more and it just shows the complexity of the structure of the tunnels in the mountains. They cannot get through. They cannot find their way around. Well, I mean, oh, what I'm also seeing is that if somebody, they, if they're leading a rope or leading a string or whatever, then they've basically walked past somebody in the tunnel who's been able to cut the string. <laughs> yeah. And I said to him, you do know the person who cut the string was probably an eight-year-old child who knows that place at the back of his hand. He goes, you're all right. It probably was. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it just shows that, you know, the, the, the war that they so-called war on terror, it, they lost it before they went there. They lost it before they went there. Because that region, you can't just go in there and have an outright war. Even Pakistan, as Pakistan's role in this war with Afghanistan, between America and Afghanistan, was a really key role because America knew nothing about Afghanistan and Pakistan was their number one advisor. You know, it was an advisory role they had in this war. And from speaking to my friend, his father is a mayor of Lahore. And he said that the advice that they were giving them was strike a deal, strike a deal, strike a deal. And they just refused to strike a deal. And now you can see what's happened. They've, they've, come back, they've had to withdraw. What, what, were, what were the British and Americans actually doing there? So I spoke to one of my uh, friends, got a twin brother who served out there. And he goes to me, he was in Kandahar when it was really, really rife. He, saw, he says, I, I saw people's legs get blown off. And he, per, his personal opinion was they, they, they were there for natural resource. They were just there for resource. And it was all a big business. 
it was an acquisition of some big business, you know, be it the opium trade, be it natural resource, you know. But I think Afghanistan still has a trillion dollars worth of natural resources there. And even geopolitically, where Afghanistan is located, you know, you're bordering with Russia, you're bordering with China. You know, the US would want to be there. And then you've got Pakistan right there, who's probably, but military, militarily speaking, the most powerful Muslim country. But the thing is, it's <clears throat> what's going to happen to this part of the world now, the Afghan, Pakistan kind of regions, now that they've left? Because this, this place has a strong history of everything. Because based on the, 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 the history of the people, you know, like in the Punjab, you've got the, the oldest, oldest Sufic traditions. And then in, in the Afghan regions, you've got the oldest, oldest tribal kind of traditions and warriors. And so it, it, it's like, what's going to happen there? Because that region is, is neighboring to the largest superpowers, which are Russia and China. What I think should happen should be the KPK region, how they've got a border there. I think the border should be kind of abolished. That would create expansion in the regions, you know? There's going to be a lot of white noise within the Pakistani community regarding uh, where they stand with the Afghani people. But my personal advice would be, as I am from the Pakistani community as well, is that you have to support your brothers. You have to. You know, there has to be a, a kind of a coalition between the Punjabis and the Patans, you know, because I was saying it, I was saying it to my dad that in an Afghan household, you'll have five people. Yeah. These five people, you'll have five Kalashnikovs and one cop to drink from and in the Punjabi household you'll have five cups to drink from but one Klashnikov you know <laughs> what, what did your what did your father say to that uh, my, my, my dad was completely in agreement with me uh, completely I, when I said to him when I said the cup I, I meant the cup as in in Sufic terminology you know in the Punjabi household you'd have five cups and one Klashnikov but in the Patan household you have five Klashnikovs and one cup and you bring them two together You've got six and, cups and six Kalashnikovs. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you bring the, not the physical cups, but if you bring that <laughs> mentality, that ethos together. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's Maybe it, is it is metaphorical, not mathematical. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so now what's your message to your average British Muslim? who's watching the BBC, is reading the news, is being fed a number of different narratives through social media. What's your message to them based on the events happening in Afghanistan now and, and the narrative that's being pushed through the media? Yes. Well, first and foremost, I'd say don't fall for the Western, the, the media narrative. Do not fall for that media narrative at all. And what's happening now is the death of something old and the beginning of something new. So we're kind of in the interim stages of what's going on in that part of the world. And rather looking at the death of something old and clinging on to that ideology, look at the beginning of something new. What, what, what's going to come from this that's new and be a part of that? You know, because the young British Muslims are highly skilled individuals, you know, they all got, they're, they're, you know, you've got lawyers, doctors, you've got all sorts. And it's, it's, it's what you can give end of the day and not from a, not from a, in, a monetary kind of perspective of go there and invest and, you know, CPEC and all this is happening, go quadruple your investments. Nothing like that is what can you actually add to that place of that place where you're from? And there's the beginning of something new. And if you don't, go and participate in some way, shape or form and try to create something great, 
then you will probably kick yourself in a few years time but go participate and go be part of something great and new because because every young british muslim will know that the the, 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 the i think 65% of the population of that part of the world is under 25 you know what a young dynamic place it is and go there and when you say there you're talking about afghanistan pakistan yeah pakistan i'd say pakistan ideally because of the current situation in afghanistan it's it's not ideal to be there but i think the whole afghanistan outcome is going to be based on what pakistan does what comes out of islamabad is what's going to shape future events in afghanistan i was in dubai recently and everyone knows when you go to dubai all the taxi drivers are all pakistanis right <laughs> the majority of them are like from you know the 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 pakhtun areas that part of the world the kpk region and i was speaking to them and i was you know, having general chit chat with them about islam and they know nothing absolutely nothing about islam and the knowledge we have about the deen here believe it or not is greater than what they have there you know maybe they have the a bit more of the amal more a bit more of the actions but that's because of the fitra of the place but what we have here on on a, on a kind of educational knowledge based outlook is far greater than what they have there and it's like maybe the fragrances of the west can cure the illnesses of the east and that fragrances being us guys with the knowledge we have about Islam because we've had great sheikhs we've had great teachers here you know and i was speaking to about my friend saying look we just need to go out there and show them what the truth of the deen because based on our education and what we have here they've not had it because they've been in war torn situations with being for them it was living on a day to day basis because the the whole narrative that the media is pushing right now is that you know the taliban issue is with the women but the issue with the taliban isn't a liberal or a conservative one but it's a matter of life and death for them people there you know they don't care about these liberal and conservative issues what they care about is their day to day living and the, the what i would say to people is go back and you know they need to be retaught all these basic basic islamic principles on how to go about your day to day living and survival that place is completely demolished it needs to be completely rebuilt and what we have here is the tools to, and the knowledge and the expertise to rebuild and that's exactly what i was saying to my friend and i think what i said to him on one on one i'd say to a wide audience it would be the same advice i'd give is is uh, you have to be the fragrance for them people i mean for you that speaks urdu speaks punjabi you can go and have have and have been in and out of pakistan and that area for many years you can go there and you can give that western fragrance because you've been exposed to it now what would your advice be for those muslims that realistically aren't going to go and uh, help the reconstruction etc etc my message to them would be that you, you you have to give diligence to this affair to this outcome because it will have an effect on future generations in Europe as well because well in Britain sorry because the predominantly of Islam in this country is from that part of the world and by you just keeping tabs on it and knowing what's going on there you you put you'll be putting yourself without knowing maybe in the unseen in a very safe position 
because what you're what you're doing essentially is not is, it's not forming an alliance, but you, you, it's one eye forward. You're, you're looking ahead as well. And I say, look, keeping your eye on that part of the world, you'll be looking ahead. And that's all I can say. If you can't, you know, if you can't go back and if you haven't got that kind of linkage, just keep your eye on that part of the world because that's where the advancements will happen for the dean in the next few years. Now, I think personally, don't let anyone uh, cloud your thinking or your opinion. Form it yourself. Speak to the people here. There's plenty of people here from that part of the world. You have to look that. This is what I was saying it to. I was saying this to my uh, wife is that this is what happened at the back end of a, a, a global pandemic you know and it's that everyone's seriously isolated and we have to use this event to do is do the complete opposite of isolation and come together so this event should cause amalgamation of the muslims in britain and uk and it's like one thing i'll say a lot of people here what i've heard is like oh why have they just accepted um uh the taliban why are the people there if they're so against the taliban why have they accepted them and I say, my answer to them, people has been, why did you accept the vaccine? Because you wanted life to go back to normal. And these people have accepted it because they want their life to go back to normality as well. They don't want to have military presence. They don't want to hear drones. They don't want to have IEDs blowing up. So you can't look at them and say, oh, no, they've accepted the Taliban. It's their own fault. It's wrong. You can't say that when people here have done the complete same thing in the form of a vaccination just to go back to normality. You know, half the people you ask them, why did you get the vaccine? The answer will be, so I can travel. <laughs> One thing I do have to say is the article written by uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir in uh, 2007, you know, Rahim Allah, he, you know, the, the, this, this article was ahead of its time. So uh, in the end of the article, the Sheikh says, the Afghan affair can only be satisfied from Islamabad. Pakistan is faced with three possibilities. He says, number one is disappearance, is divided into regions, etc. And then number two is fragmentation. And then number three is expansion, where it means successful Pakistan and the opening to the north, where the, the kind of the, the, the narrative between the Patans and the Punjabis would be of the Mohajirun and the Ansar at the time of the Rasul. You know, that, that would be the kind of narrative that they follow, where the, where the Punjabis accept the Patans, which they have, you know, um, I have friends who, my father's friends actually, whose, child, whose children are now my friends, who were like, they said during the Russian war, three million Afghans went into Pakistan and they were given, you know, they were, they were given a home, they were given food, you know, they, they, they took them in. And I think the same thing needs to happen now again, but on a, on a, on a, on a higher level, on a political level now. And... Uh, I think Imran Khan being of Pakhtun, you know, the government, Pakistani government is Pakhtun right now anyway. So I think it's like the perfect time for something like this to happen. This is what I've been saying to all my, you know, British Pakistani friends who are of Pakhtun origin, of Punjabi origin, Kashmiri origin. I said that with the passing of Sheikh of the Rahimullah, we lost our greatest ally. He was our greatest ally in the world. With him passing away, this event has occurred he still left us his teachings and he was our greatest ally. No one can deny that. You know, you read his works and I think everyone should read his works, particularly about the issues in that part of the world. And they'll see what I mean by he was our greatest ally. Can you name some specific works? Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just start off with this article, you know, Afghanistan, the next phase. You know, this was written in what, 2007? 
And then the another, another article written on July the 11th, 2007, it was the, the Pakistani High Command, The Last Chance. You know, you read these articles written by him and you'll see he was our greatest ally of the Bhutans and the Muslims, the Pakhtuns, the Punjabis, that part of the world, he was the greatest ally we had. His, his teachings are the fragments. Thank you for listening to this episode. I've added into the episode description links to the two articles that Juwad mentioned by Sheikh Abdul Qadir, written in 2007. Even if you read them before, they're well worth reading again, not only to understand the events that are transpiring in Afghanistan and the subcontinent, but also to put everything that Jawad was talking about into perspective. So once again, thank you.